The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. So we've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts. And today, the next passage we come to is Acts 15, 22 through 41. And it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having to come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So then they were sent off. They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with, with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there they arose a sharp disagreement so that they, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark and with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what a joy it is to dig into your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your spirit who helps us to be affected by the things we read in, in all of the appropriate ways. Lord, I, I pray that that would be the case for us this morning, that we wouldn't just learn some neat facts about things that happened thousands of years ago, but that you would use 
the things we read in this text, Lord, to get a hold of our hearts, to shape us, to be more like Jesus, and to accomplish every purpose that you have for us this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, One of the biggest blessings of these past five years of our church's history has been the wonderful degree of unity uh, we have enjoyed. As Psalm 133.1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And generally speaking, that's been our church. However, it would be quite foolish and even naive to think that just because we've enjoyed such unity so far that we're somehow immune to division or discord. I remember when I was in college, I went on a trip with uh, some friends of mine down to Florida for spring break. And on this trip, I didn't bring any sunscreen. So one of my friends noticed I hadn't brought any sunscreen, and he asked if I'd like to borrow some of his. But instead of taking him up on his offer, I informed my friend that I had been out in the sun all summer, the previous summer, as as a camp counselor, and that I never got burnt. And so I was pretty sure that I could handle a single week in the spring, right? I thought I was immune. Now, what I failed to take into account is that the previous summer had been spent in the mountains of North Carolina rather than on a beach in Florida, and I'd also failed to take into account how white my skin had become during the winter and how I'd lost the the tan I had gradually taken on the previous summer. And so... You can probably guess what happened, right? Uh, After the very first day on the beach, I was as red as a lobster. So I thought I was immune until I experienced that Florida sun. And then I discovered that I was, in fact, very much not immune, as I thought. And if you want to learn from my painful experience, there are two things you might want to consider. Number one wear sunscreen. And number two, don't assume that our church is somehow immune to conflict just because we've been getting along okay so far. Like, we are no more immune to conflict than I was immune to sunburn. The fact is that Satan would love to stir things up and bring dissension into our church. And of course, There's no shortage of opportunities for him to do that. Because in case you haven't noticed, there are quite a few issues these days about which Christians often disagree. Perhaps the most obvious such issues relate to COVID and COVID-related government restrictions and how Christians should respond to the continuing presence of COVID. Also, many of these issues relate to politics and and, uh, the way Christians should respond to various political ideologies. And then, of course, in addition to those things, there are the perennial issues about which Christians often disagree, such as whether it's okay to consume alcohol in moderation, what kinds of movies or TV shows are okay to watch, uh, what kinds of activities are permitted on Sundays, what forms of discipline to use when, when disciplining a child, 
and whether Christians should send their children to public schools or Christian schools or home school, and, this, and uh, what kinds of music are, are we should sing in the church. All of those things are issues Christians often disagree on. And on top of all of those things, there's the simple fact that different people have different personalities. And that certain personalities don't always mesh very well with other personalities. And then on top of all of that, well, you have the fact that we are sinners. And sometimes sin against each other. So that's why I say it's only a matter of time until something comes up in our church. Like, we've already been incredibly blessed to enjoy the unity we've enjoyed so far. But as you can see, there are many different vulnerabilities that Satan can exploit in order to stir up division and dissension in our church. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. And so it's critical for us to prepare ourselves for that and to learn how to approach contentious issues in a biblical way. And that's precisely what we learn from our main passage, Acts 15, 22 through 41. The main idea of this passage is that God calls us to approach contentious issues with biblical wisdom and love. God calls us to approach contentious issues with biblical wisdom and love. Now, just to remind you of the context here, we saw last time, two weeks ago, in the first half of chapter 15, that some men from Judea were causing trouble in the church of Antioch by claiming that in order to be saved, you first had to be circumcised. That's what they were saying. Circumcision was something that God had instructed Abraham and his male descendants to do as a sign that they were God's chosen people. So naturally, it was a source of great national pride and national identity for the Jews. And some of these Jews who claimed to be Christians were teaching that circumcision is a requirement for being saved and going to heaven. These men are often known as Judaizers, and were essentially denying the central Christian teaching of salvation by grace alone. Not by a combination, as we saw two weeks ago, of grace plus works, but rather by grace alone. So Paul and Barnabas recognized that this teaching of circumcision as a requirement for salvation is an error of the first degree. And are therefore sent by the church of Antioch down to the church of Jerusalem in order to take the issue before the apostles and, and the other leaders of the Jerusalem church. And so all the, the heavy hitters of the early church gather together at Jerusalem in order to discuss this issue and make a decision about whether or not to permit these kinds of teachings. And after coming to a consensus, they together write a letter to the church of Antioch, which is recorded in verses 23 through 29 of the chapter that we're looking at today. And the first thing I want us to notice about this letter is what it says about the Judaizers. Beginning in verse 24, the letter says, we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds 
although we gave them no instructions. The rest of the letter then proceeds to give instructions directly contradicting the teachings of the Judaizers, as we'll see. So notice first what the leaders of the church don't do in response to these contentious, this contentious issue. They don't tolerate false doctrine. Instead, they make it quite clear that the Judaizers have been operating without any authorization whatsoever from the church leaders, which is rightly taken as a clear repudiation of the Judaizers. And there's a lot we can learn from that. Because many people nowadays have this idea that it's okay to compromise key biblical teachings in the pursuit of unity. That's a common sentiment in what's often known as the ecumenical movement. Uh, Many times it even leads to downplaying differences between different religions and trying to make the case that all religions basically teach the same message. Yet we seem a much different approach in Acts 15, don't we? The church leaders refuse to tolerate any teaching in the church that contradicts the gospel message of Jesus. And there's an important principle we can glean from that. That true unity is more than just the absence of conflict or external division. In order to be truly unified, there has to be something that we're unified around. Now, something that brings us together. For example, think about a group of people standing in an elevator together. Are those people unified? Well, they may be occupying the same general space and uh, not fighting with each other or have any animosity toward each other, but I'm not sure we could call them unified. It's probably only by coincidence that they're even around each other. They just happen to be crossing paths. Some of them maybe even be thinking about how awkward it is to be standing in such close proximity to complete strangers. So even though there's no conflict or division among them, it doesn't really seem appropriate to call them unified. Because in order to have unity, again, there has to be something you're unified around. And the thing that the early Christians were unified around, and in fact that all true Christians from every era are unified around, is the Bible's central message about Jesus that we call the gospel. That message in its most basic form is that we have all sinned against God and deserve eternal judgment for our sins, but that Jesus came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He came to save us. And the way he accomplished that was by dying on the cross to make atonement for our sins, to to pay the debt to God's justice that we owed, and then to rise from the dead three days later with the result that everyone who repents of their sins and puts their faith in Jesus as their only hope for rescue will indeed be rescued by Jesus and will spend eternity in heaven. So that gospel message is what brings us together, right? That is the source of our unity. 
And that's why we find it impossible to speak of unity with any group that denies one or more of these core components of the gospel. Uh, Even if, in, in certain situations, that group claims to be a Christian group. If there's not agreement on all of the essential teachings of the gospel, then there is no unity. Plain and simple. And that's the mindset reflected here in Acts 15 as well. Unity is built on more than mere sentiment, but rather constructed on the solid foundation of gospel truth. However, the letter doesn't stop there. Look at verses 25 through 29. It has seemed good to us, so this is them continuing to write their letter here. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So notice how sensitive the church leaders are to the cultural and ethnic tensions that exist in the church. They recognize that these tensions threaten the unity of the church, and and therefore they instruct the predominantly Gentile or non-Jewish churches to avoid things that would offend Jewish sensibilities unnecessarily. That's what's going on here. So so the leaders of the Jerusalem church understand they're not saying that these four requirements are things you have to do in order to be saved, like the Judaizers were saying with circumcision. They're not saying that. They're simply saying that this is what's needed in order to preserve the unity between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Now, looking at this list here, the first three requirements of abstaining from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what's been strangled, all relate to the food laws of the Old Testament. Even though we've already seen in Acts that these food laws are no longer binding on anyone Many of the Jewish Christians still preferred to observe them and were put off when Gentile Christians routinely violated them. Also, the leaders of the church instruct the Gentile churches to abstain from sexual immorality, which might seem kind of strange at first since one would think that sexual immorality would be prohibited anyway and wasn't just a a preference issue or a unity issue, but rather was a sin issue. Uh, I believe the best explanation for why it's in this letter is that the Gentile Christians had standards for sexual purity that were, uh, we might say, a lot lower than the Jewish Christians. Because you have to remember that these Gentile Christians were saved out of pagan worship, which often involves some very shameless forms of sexual immorality. Uh, Temple priests and priestesses were often nothing more than glorified prostitutes. And so the leaders of the church uh, were reminding these Gentile Christians that they needed to live lives that were indeed free from any kind of sexual immorality, even things that they might not be 
uh, otherwise quite as sensitive to. And uh, the principle for unity that we can glean from all four of the requirements on this letter is that unity requires that we lay down our own personal preferences for the sake of our Christian brothers and sisters. It requires that we put others above ourselves and consider their welfare before our own. You know, as Americans, so often, our first instinct is to do what? To insist on our rights, right? We don't want anyone infringing on our rights. And even though that might be very appropriate when it comes to certain things like government legislation, that's not the way that we as followers of Jesus are called to relate to the individual people whom we encounter in the course of our daily lives. Christianity, understand that it's about voluntarily laying down our rights and our preferences out of love for the people around us. And just to say that bluntly, if our church is going to continue to enjoy the unity we've enjoyed up to this point, then it's critical that we regularly lay down our rights and our preferences for one another's sake. After all, that's what biblical love looks like. Biblical love involves recognizing that people are more important than our preferences. Let me say that again. People are more important than our preferences. Therefore, pursuing the welfare of the people around us should be a way higher priority for us than making sure that all of our personal preferences are observed. So really, what all this boils down to is that Christian unity requires Christian love. Christian unity requires Christian love. And the place where we see that love exemplified most clearly is, of course, in the gospel. In fact, in Philippians 2, as Paul's exhorting the believers in Philippi to pursue unity through this exact thing, through the renunciation of personal preferences, he explicitly links this kind of mindset to what Jesus has done for us. Listen to what he writes in Philippians 2, 1 through 8. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then do this, he says. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So again, quick recap so far. Unity involves renouncing selfish ambition, counting others more significant than ourselves, and looking not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And where do we see this mindset? Paul continues, verse 5, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So ultimately, we lay down our preferences because Jesus laid down his. We serve others because Jesus has served us. That's what Paul instructs the Philippians to do in Philippians 2 and what the church leaders instruct the churches to do back in Acts 15. And just to get super practical with that, uh, here are a few of the things that involves. So here's what it looks like to count others more significant than ourselves and to put their interests and their preferences above our own. First, overlooking offenses committed against us whenever possible. Proverbs 10, 12 states that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So instead of making a big deal about something that probably isn't that big of a deal, just swallow your pride and overlook the offense. Forgive the person without even bringing up the issue to anybody. Now, of course, there are some situations where that's not practical or advisable. But 90% of the time, I'd say, that's probably what you need to do. (laughs) And second, follow the well-known adage of seeking first to understand and only then to be understood. You know, I wonder how much conflict can be attributed simply to people not communicating well and not truly understanding each other. And they're so busy, waxing eloquent about their own perspectives that they fail to invest sufficient energy and effort into understanding the perspectives of those who see things different. Listen, even if you never end up agreeing with the perspectives of those who see things differently than you do, simply the act of making an effort to understand them is a very loving thing to do. And in the context of a local church, I'd say it's not just a loving thing, but a very necessary thing. So take a moment right now and imagine a church that does all of these things as a regular style of their lives. I mean, just imagine what that would be like. A church where everyone's eager to love and serve the people around them, to put the interests and preferences of others above their own personal preferences and interests, to simply overlook about 90% of the offenses committed against them, and to seek to understand before seeking to be understood. So for a church like that, that just does all that perfectly, I'm not saying it would be impossible for conflict to arise in that church, but it certainly seems close to impossible, right? Um, It's just hard to imagine a scenario where that kind of a church could experience conflict in a harmful way. So let's strive to be that kind of a church.
However, uh, with that said, there will still be times when believers who are genuinely striving to love each other in all of these ways, nevertheless find themselves unable to come to an agreement about certain issues. We actually see an example of this in our main passage in Acts 15, 36 through 41. Now, keep in mind, this takes place after the the big council at Jerusalem has ended. And it says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, there are different theories about why Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Some commentators have suggested that perhaps the journey just became too difficult and dangerous for Mark. Others have suggested that Mark resented Paul becoming the primary leader instead of Barnabas, who was Mark's cousin. And still others have suggested that Mark disapproved of Paul's passion to reach out to the Gentiles with the gospel instead of just focusing on the Jews. Yet regardless of what Mark's reason was for leaving his missionary companions, Paul thought it was a pretty bad reason. So bad that Paul had no desire to take Mark along on another missionary journey. However, Barnabas sharply disagreed with that and insisted that Mark be allowed to come along with them. And so as a result, Paul and Barnabas parted ways. And sometimes That's the way things are. There are times when believers disagree about something, and despite their best efforts to to resolve the issue, they, they just can't resolve their disagreement. So, how do we work through those kinds of issues? More specifically, how do we distinguish in a church between situations where we can just agree to disagree and then situations in which some sort of separation is necessary. Well, I'm glad you asked. The way I recommend approaching this is through something that I often call theological triage. Those of you who have been through the membership information class probably recognize that phrase. It's kind of like what you'd find in an emergency. Um, As you know, if you go to an emergency room with some sort of medical issue, they're going to prioritize you based on how urgent they believe your issue to be. So if you go in there because you think you broke your finger and then someone else comes out with a gunshot wound to their stomach a few minutes after you, they're probably going to see the person with the gunshot wound first, right? Even though you got there before that other person. So that's that's called triage. And that's essentially what we have to do with various theological and ethical issues that we disagree on as well. And there are three levels to this theological triage. The first level is what we might call gospel issues. 
These are issues that we pretty much have to agree on in order to have the true spiritual unity that I talked about earlier and, and uh, view each other as true brothers and sisters in the faith. These include issues like the Trinity, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and being saved by faith alone. And if anybody has an unbiblical view about one of these gospel issues, then we really can't consider that person to be a Christian. Then after that, we have the, the second category of membership issues. Uh, these are issues that we require agreement on in order for somebody to be a member of our church. Uh, things like a particular view of infant baptism, baptism versus believer's baptism, and the role of women in ministry, and not being able to lose our salvation. Now, unlike the first category, understand we're not saying that people who disagree with us about these issues aren't Christians, right? They may love the Lord every bit as much as we do, but we do require that everyone in the church hold the same view on these issues, or at least agree to support the teaching of our church on these issues so that our church can move forward in a healthy and productive manner and also be protected from certain teachings that we would view as exceptionally harmful. And then finally, after gospel issues and membership issues, the third category is personal opinions. And that is an opinion of, of what Scripture teaches. And, and these opinions would be, well, everything else. So if it's not a gospel issue or a membership issue, then by default, it's in this third category of personal opinions. So examples related to, uh, uh, are related to a chronology of the end times, speaking in tongues, Calvinism, at least most of its points, versus Arminianism, and uh, various ethical issues as well, such as the consumption of alcohol and uh, how to observe the Lord's Day properly and whether parents should homeschool their kids or send them to public school or what they should do. Now, none, this isn't to say that none of these issues are important. Some of these things are very important. However, it is to say that we, shouldn't want, uh, we, we don't want these kinds of things to disrupt the unity or the fellowship of our church. And also, to be clear, it's totally fine to uh, politely try to persuade others in the church of your viewpoints on these issues. And even at times to have some very robust discussions but it's not okay for us to, to create division over it or, or imply that those who don't end up adopting our views are somehow less Christian or less devoted as Christians. And so that's our system of theological triage. Gospel issues, membership issues, and personal opinions. And by the way, the way you can tell what category we believe something's in is by our church's official doctrinal statement. Basically, if it's in the doctrinal statement, then you know that it's either a gospel issue or a membership issue. And if it's not in the doctrinal statement, then that means we consider it to be a personal opinion and would respectfully ask you not to create division over that issue. Uh, because, brothers and sisters, please understand that Jesus wants his church to be unified and is grieved 
when we're not. I mean, just read his famous prayer to the Father in John 17. What was his main request? Was it not that his people would be one, just as he and the Father are one? And on top of that, Jesus also made it clear elsewhere that our love for each other as Christians is a key component, a core component of our evangelistic witness to the world. He states in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So as you can see, in order to persuasively tell people about the love of Jesus with our lips, we have to be demonstrating the love of Jesus in our lives, and specifically in our relationships with each other. Otherwise, our witness is just empty words. And finally, let me make one concluding observation related to that. If there are a lot of silly disagreements and divisions going on in a church, then that's a sign of something. That's a sign that the people of that church probably aren't very engaged in the mission Jesus has given us of sharing the gospel and making disciples. I mean, think about an army, right? When do problems arise between soldiers in the same army? It's when they're just sitting around and not doing anything, right? But when they're actively fighting in a battle, things are a lot different. I mean, I can virtually guarantee that in the Ukrainian army right now, there's no division within their ranks. They are fighting side by side for the defense of their nation. They don't have time for minor skirmishes within their own ranks. They're too busy fighting the battle. And likewise, if you're truly engaged in the mission Jesus has given us and, and in embodying that missionary lifestyle, in my experience, you just don't have time for disagreements about silly issues with other Christians. You're, you're too busy building friendships with those who aren't Christians yet and, and praying for them by name on a regular basis and, and seeking opportunities to share the gospel with them and maybe starting an evangelistic Bible study. You're too busy engaging in the mission to worry about differences of opinion between you and other Christians about these lower-level doctrinal issues. So let's challenge ourselves in that way this morning, shall we? And let's take all of that energy that might otherwise be directed toward needless, silly disagreements and instead channel that energy into fulfilling the missionary calling that God has placed on each of our lives as missionaries to the greater region of Pittsburgh. And we'll have plenty of time, guys, to, to figure everything else out when we get to heaven and to cross every theological T and to dot every theological I. Well, plenty of time. But for now, let's use the precious few years that Jesus has given us on this earth to make an eternal impact on the people around us by 
by sharing the gospel with them and by making disciples. An impact that will last for all eternity.